The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Pray with me. Holy One, worthy of all our praise, we just say amen to that. Amen. So be it. Would you be the one that stands at the center of all of our experiences in life and occupies the throne in each of our hearts, calls forth from us praise in the midst of delight and in the midst of disaster. This fallen world has both. And you are good in all of it. You are a good God. Full of steadfast love and faithfulness. Holy, holy, holy. Perfect. Beautiful beyond all description and all comprehension. And so I I plead with you to send your Spirit to us to give us a little bit more comprehension than we have. We will never know you fully. You are infinite. But we must know you. We must know you in in some part, Lord. Because you are are the the food for our souls. We must know you. And so I, I plead with you, would you show yourself to us a little bit? I know some of the experiences that my friends here have gone through this last week. Some of them are great and some of them are hard. Show yourself to my brothers and sisters here, please. Would you appear as you are, holy and perfect and good, full of love towards them, faithful to them, gracious, kind in all your ways. Show yourself like that to them. Use this passage this morning, Lord. Use something else. Whatever it is that you do, I pray that you would would minister to your people. You would use this time now for that. You would open our eyes to your Scriptures. Lord, we see in this passage the psalmist dealing with great things and hard things. Reflecting on wonderful things and terrible things. Meet us in the midst of both of those things and and feed us. I pray that, God, come. Would you inhabit this time now? Would you command your Spirit to come and move through this room, fill our minds and our hearts, show some of you to us, change us, mature us, For those here, Lord, who don't know You, would You call them to You? Open their eyes. Reveal Yourself. Lord, we live and move and have our being only in You. And so if You don't don't hear and respond in some way, we we will be left stranded, orphaned. And so our prayer is, come, inhabit this place in power. Open the eyes of our hearts. Teach us and change us for your glory, Lord, and for the good of us, your people, I pray this. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Psalm 89 which is the final psalm in this third section of the book of the Psalter. We won't finish with the psalms this week. Our candidate next week is going to preach one of these psalms as well, and then we'll be finished. But this morning we, we look at Psalm 89, which is the end of this, of this section. And together with Psalm 88, 88-89, form the low point of the whole book of the psalms. All of these psalms been going down, 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 and here they are with 88, 89 at the low point 
of all of these poems, songs, that's what the psalms are, they're, they're poetic songs, about the experience of people with God. They evaluate their life as they worship Him. This is the low point. I mentioned before that a lot of these psalms in this section are in some way connected to the exile. When God, who had brought His people into Israel because of their sin and how they broke the covenant, He kicked them out of Israel and sent them away as prisoners into a foreign land, the exile. And even the positive psalms in this section are are somewhat wistful. Remembering the good times. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to be back there? There are some positive ones, but they're connected to the exile as well. And there are some plain negative ones and some raw ones. And, And this morning in Psalm 89, we see a little bit of each. There is some of that negative questioning, that concern, the uncertainty that we've seen before, framed with a whole bunch of positive. There is a lot of beautiful content in Psalm 89. We'll look at that, but we'll also deal with with the negative. And there's a bit of a slant to this psalm. A number of the psalms have been kind of a first-person singular I. I'm confused. I don't know what to make of this. I'm suffering. This morning we're going to be leaning a little more, just a little bit more, on the first-person plural, we. Not because the word we appears a lot in this psalm, it actually doesn't, but because the focus is on an individual other than me, other than you. The focus is on the individual David, really on the line of David, the the royal line of David. David is himself the first David's long dead by the time this is written. It's talking about the line of David. It's focusing on him and his people under him and what they deal with. And of course, it does get down to individuals, so we will talk about me and you, but it's a little bit slanted towards us. So we'll see that a little bit this morning. I'm going to begin by reading Psalm 89, and then I'll pass back through it as usual to make sure we understand the flow of the psalm and then make a couple of observations. Begin with Psalm 89, verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise Your wonders, O Lord, Your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around Him? O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as You are, O Lord, with Your faithfulness all around You? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. Who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. Who exult in your name all the day. And in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. 
so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Selah. But now, you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You've turned back the edge of his sword and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. How long, O Lord... Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Psalm 89. Obviously a very lengthy psalm which has two distinct halves to it. A couple of subsections. The first section, verses 1 to 4, which are marked off, concluded by that first selah. And remember that selah is a, is a term that kind of tells us to pause and think for a second and take in what's just been said. The first section, verses 1 to 4, sort of lays out the groundwork for the rest of the psalm by introducing the basic ideas. The two basic Fundamental ideas in this psalm come up in verses 1 to 4. First, he says, verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord and make known His faithfulness. And then verse 2, again, the steadfast love of the Lord and His faithfulness. The Lord is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. His shorthand description of God. It repeats it throughout the whole psalm. It's an important concept throughout the whole Bible. Depending on what translation you're looking at, it might say something a little different. Steadfast love, it might say loving kindness or, or loving faithfulness or merciful love or even just love, depending on what you're looking at. 
It's difficult to translate the word, but the, the basic concept is that the Lord is full of a profound, deep, abiding, contagious, spreading love. It is His nature to be condescending. That's not a bad word. To condescend is for somebody who is high to stoop down to someone who is low. He is like this in His nature. A God who is high but is bent towards descending down to those who are lowly and have no rights, have no hold on Him, do not deserve anything, and yet He will reach out and bless them. Love. He's like that at His core. Faithful in it. It is dependable, trustworthy, true, steadfast. This is is Him in His core. Full of steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the first basic idea. The first idea that's going to be elaborated on throughout the psalm. And the second one then comes up in 3 and 4. We have a Lord who is building up steadfast love and faithfulness, it says in 1 and 2, and He is also building up and establishing David and his lineage. He chose David and made a covenant with him and his offspring after him to build them up and establish them. He swore to him, in fact, and if a steadfast God of faithfulness swears, it is sure. He swore to him, I have given you the right to reign and your throne. I am going to set it up and it will last, David. Down through your offspring, I am establishing it and building it. Just like I am establishing and building my steadfast love and faithfulness, Selah. Sort of like, period. Those are the issues. Verses 1 to 4. That's what he's putting on the table. The Lord is a God like this, steadfast love and faithfulness, and He's building that. And He has sworn that He's going to build and establish David's throne. Selah. Which then leads into two sections that elaborate on those two things. First, a section 5 to 18 that is full of praise. As he turns to and works through some of the aspects of God's nature. 5.18 May the heavens and the heavenly beings praise You, O Lord, for Your wonders and for Your faithfulness, for You are mighty. All Your faithfulness, again in verse 8. He has a mighty arm. Verse 13. A strong hand. High is your right hand. This is, this is all about the great power and might of the Lord. And importantly, if you have a God that has tremendous power like that, what kind of power is it? What kind of God is He? Well, 14, thankfully, He is a God who reigns in tremendous power. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you, which if you're counting is the third and fifth time those traits are mentioned. This is a God of unparalleled power who in His nature is reigning over everything that is. He created everything it says. He reigns over everything it says from a basis of righteousness and justice with steadfast love. Take it to the bank. He is faithful. Blessed then. Happy. Fortunate. Blessed are the people who know this. Verse 15, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, the shout in the festivals of celebration, who walk in the light of this God's face. Happy are those people. For the Lord is the glory, that is, He is the shining, prized element of their power, their strength, Their horn, their shield, four different terms for the same thing. Their king. Happy is a people who has a king, and of that king, the glory of that king is the Lord. David, and his glory is the Lord. 
Which moves us to the second main element. David. Of old you spoke in a vision, 19 and following. 19 to 37 now address what God said about David and what He's doing through David. One who is mighty. I have lifted up David. I found him. I chose him. I have made him my servant, my guy. I took holy oil and I anointed him, says the Lord. And notice how this is all in first person God's viewpoint. This is God speaking now. God is is very clearly claiming David as his own. I found him. I took him. I anointed him. I have set him up as my king. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. Verse 24. I lift him up and I put one hand on the sea and one hand on the river, spreading out his power, his reign, his throne across the earth. David. I will make him the firstborn among all the kings of the earth. And obviously, firstborn is not about first one to be born. He's going to make him the firstborn. It's not about birth order. As often is the case, this term is about power and authority. The firstborn is the one who's in charge. I'm going to make David the one in charge of everything, of all of the kings, of all of the earth, the supreme one. Now, if his sons sin, surely there's, verse 30 recognizes that they might sin. His lineage, people will sin. God says, I will punish them if they sin, if they break the covenant. But my steadfast love and my faithfulness will not depart from David forever. His throne lasts. Selah. Which is a really big pause here because there have been 32 verses since the last Selah. And, and I, obviously, I just skated across the top of all those verses. You could spend a long time looking at many of those verses or couplets. There's a lot there. But I've skated across the top because there's so many of them. A lot's been said about the, the nature of God and what He's doing with His King, David, and His line. He's unpacking and and repeating and reaffirming this basic ground where God is a righteous God. He is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, especially to David forever. And then it all changes in verse 38. Here's where the dissonance comes in. You read verse 38 and suddenly you realize... Huh. This guy's writing this. Maybe he's in Babylon in captivity. Maybe with his mind's eye, he's seeing the smoking remnants of this palace of David or the temple torn down and burned. But there's, there's a, a significant shift here between verse 37, the Selah, then the verse 38. But now, I mean... His offspring shall endure forever, His throne as long as the sun before Him. And a couple verses later, you've torn His throne down. What? How's that? The dissonance here. Something's not matching up. You've cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath, it says, towards David. Earlier, you poured out your your holy oil on him and anointed him, and now you're pouring out wrath on him. What? What? Earlier, you said, I'm going to give triumph to him over his enemies, and now you're giving triumph to his enemies over him. What? How is that? Why is that? He goes out to battle, and you have blunted his sword. And caused him to fall. And you've torn down the wall. And everybody who wishes walks by and plunders this great king of your... What? I thought we were the winning team. How long is this going to last, Lord? What's the deal? Verse 46. Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? 
We don't have that long. You've given us all over to death, and if you keep waiting, we will perish. How long? 49, here's the problem stated in a verse. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness, let me remind you, God, by your faithfulness you swore to David? Where is it? I'm looking around. Where? I, I know something about who you are. I've got a, a lot of theology over here, but I've also got a life right out here, and it's not matching. What's going on? And notice the repeated word here at the end. Mocking. Your servant is mocked. Your servants, us, we are mocked. We bear in our hearts the insults of all the nations by which you're anointed. Your Messiah, that's the word there, by which your Messiah is mocked. What? That's how it ends. I know there's one more verse there, verse 52, but that's actually a formal verse ending the whole section. If you look at all the other sections, they have that similar verse. It ends mocking your Messiah. What is going on in life? I mean, I got theology. What's going on in life? That's the issue the psalmist raises in 89. And so we need to address these things because they, they're our issue too. It's our issue too. We, we live, we have a whole bunch of theology and you know a whole bunch of answers. But there's a problem when it comes to evaluating the theology versus what you see with your eyes. What you walk in in life day in and day out. So we need to face this. And, and there is some help here. But there's more help when we consider where this is going what it's pointing at we have more help than he did this guy's left in babylon asking how long and since they were there 70 years he probably died there and never got the answer we have an answer that takes me to the first observation i'm going to make let me put it like this God establishes His steadfast love and faithfulness by establishing the throne of Messiah. Messiah Jesus. God establishes His steadfast love and His faithfulness by establishing the throne of His Messiah Messiah Jesus. These are the two main elements that are going on in this psalm. They start with the groundwork there. God's doing these things. And they are connected. These two elements are connected like outcome and means to accomplishing outcome are connected. So he has an outcome to establish. His, he is establishing and building steadfast love and faithfulness in all of the earth. How? By establishing the throne of, first, David. I'm going to say Messiah. That's what, he's, that's what he's after. He's doing that. He is indeed an omnipotent God. The all power. He's the creator of everything. He's the ruler of everything. And, and we need to stop and consider that. Realize that the text gives about ten verses to pushing that. It's not part of the, the central argument. The central argument is about steadfast love and faithfulness, but it gives us ten verses in verses uh, six and following that emphasize his uniqueness and his power and his authority and his reign, his rule. This is, this is inherent in language about thrones and kingdoms. Authority. So we need to stop and consider that. We're not, we're not talking about one among many, or an idea, or a religious perspective, or the way that we like to talk, talk about it. This God, this, this book, is the one and only, 
the one who created everything that is, the one who reigns over everything that is, the one who has authority over every single one of us. Because He made us. He is an omnipotent God. He reigns from a great throne built on righteousness and justice. And we cannot pull one over on Him. We cannot successfully rival Him. So we need to stop and and consider that. It says that. It tells us that. And what emanates out from that throne? This place where God rules. What emanates out from that? Your steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Verse 14 ends. Your steadfast love and faithfulness coming out from His throne into His realm. Think of a king. I don't know why this is, but all the pictures of Camelot that I have are of a castle on a hill. Lots of castles were built on hills. I don't know all of them were, but they're built on hills. And think of something flowing out of the king's throne, out of the gate, down the hill, into all of his realm. Coming out of his throne. Reaching to all the corners where he is known as king. And for this great king, this sovereign one, the Lord, who sits on a throne, what comes out of that throne flows out of the gate, down the hill, into every corner of His realm. Steadfast love and faithfulness goes before Him. It's being built up, being established, which obviously does not mean being built up in God Himself. He is steadfast love. He's not growing in steadfast love. It's being built up in His realm. His faithfulness is praised in the heavens, but it is all around Him, verse 8, going before Him, verse 14, with His King David, 24. This is what God is about. He is full of steadfast love and faithfulness, and He is about spreading it until it covers every single inch of His creation, which is why He created in the first place. Think about this. For eternity past, God has been perfectly content, perfectly happy, looking at Himself. He is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. Sitting and fellowshipping with Himself and regarding perfect love, perfect faithfulness, perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, perfect justice, perfectly, forever. You've got to think about this. God had no need, but in fact had tremendous fullness, tremendous contentedness, tremendous joy as He looks at everything perfect. So why did He create? Why? To pour that out. To show it off. To give to other creatures that He would create an alike experience of all of that beauty and all of that glory and all of that perfection. To bless them with it. To love them with that. Not out of a need. He doesn't need anything. He has it all. But what happens when He creates and presses into all of the creation Himself, which is to say His glory, which is to say His righteousness, His justice, His steadfast love, His faithfulness, His mercy. As He pushes all of that into the creation and a realm comes into existence that is shaped and colored by Himself, It's like a great big multiplication problem. Two times two is only four, but if you keep multiplying times two, you get a really big number eventually. Times two is eight, times two is sixteen, thirty, you know, it gets big. Well, he creates, and if he puts himself 
on that little creation. And those creatures reflect what he's like and are multiplied. They fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Be fruitful and multiply. Spread. Carry into my realm my beauty. It's an amazing, it's an amazing plan. He created to spread out, to to paint, if you will. Maybe some of you are artists or, or creative people. Why do you paint something? Nothing in you needs to, but you do it to to show something of your ability. And people then say, nice painting, nice sculpture, wow. They praise you for it. That's what God's doing. Showing what He is and what He can do and what He's like and people see it and praise Him for it and are blessed by it. He created to paint a world full of splendor to cover the earth and the heavens. Steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and justice. Now, have I left Psalm 89 completely behind? Not exactly. How is he going to do this? How? By establishing his throne in the throne of David. That's what Psalm 89 is talking about. I'm going to set up David. And with David will go my steadfast love and faithfulness. And I will spread David's hands to cover the the sea and the river, the realm. And he will be the pinnacle and no one will touch him. He will be king of all the earth. Owned by me. He is my king. Reflecting me in all of this creation. That's how he's going to do it. By setting up David and reigning through David. Establishing something marvelous, which is a flat out awesome plan that completely failed. Completely failed. Why? Because David's a sinner. And if he stretches out David's hands to cover the sea and the river, what David spreads out is sin. Not righteousness and justice. Not steadfast love and faithfulness, but wickedness. Because he's a sinner. He's a human being. All human beings are sinners. From birth, we are all far from him, bent against him. The great King David and every one of David's children after him All alike. Until God finally in wrath said enough and tore down the wall. And verse 44 says it tore down the throne. How long? How long is God going to to live with this tension of steadfast love and faithfulness on David? I'm going to spread my glory across the earth through David. And yet I tear down David's throne and cover him with shame. How long? How long will you make David to lie down in shame, spit upon, lied about, rejected, stripped naked, nailed to a cross, buried among the wicked, scorned, mocked? How long? I say that. I'm trying to connect two things in your mind here. Who's David? Who's the son of David, the anointed one? Jesus. Jesus. The Messiah made to lie down in shame, scorned and mocked. That's not supposed to be. He's the Messiah. But it was. How long? Well, until the third day when all hope is gone. Waited to the third day because at the third day, the, the cultural thinking of the day was then you're really dead. Decay begins to set in. He's not in a coma. He's dead. If he's been dead three days, he's dead. 
And then, God the Father turns His face back to Him, shines upon Him in steadfast love and faithfulness and raises Him up after all hope is gone. Faithful to His promise to set up David's throne. He raises Him up and makes Him king where He now reigns in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Coming soon to judge the quick and the dead, as the Bible tells us. Okay. That's information. Sketches out, I think, the the framework of how this psalm connects us to Jesus. All the psalms are pointing to Jesus. It's information. it's, It's theology. It's doctrine, if you wish. What does that matter for your life? Where does that connect for you to how you live today? It connects in in a pretty significant way. God's steadfast love is now on His Son, His chosen, anointed Son, Jesus. He looked on Him in wrath, And now no longer looks on Him in wrath, but only in love. And if you are in Him, what does that mean about you? I could pick it up in a verse, John 15.9. Jot that down look at it later. John 15.9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. What this all means, if you boil it down, is that the love of God, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God is focused onto David and particularly the Messiah and all those who are in the Messiah, which is you if you're a Christian. Come back to that in just a moment. And if you're not a Christian... You do not have access to this love anywhere else except in Jesus. There is only one way. Apart from Jesus, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God is not found out here. It is only found flowing out of this one Son of David, Jesus. The thing that you need more than anything in life, and the thing that you have forfeited by your sin. The gracious love of God is available in one place, and it is available in one place. So you must come to Jesus. What does that mean? It does not mean come to church. It does not mean in your language, start talking about how much you love Jesus or the Savior or the Messiah or whatever. It's not about a language thing. It's not about a place you come. It is a question completely about who you trust. And it's a binary thing. One or the other. Jesus or yourself. There is no legitimate combination of those two. Jesus or yourself. There is steadfast love and faithfulness and mercy and grace found from God in Jesus, not in yourself. I need to make that as clear as I possibly can and plead with you, come to Christ, who is your only hope. And if you have come to Him, you should should sing rejoicing. Because His steadfast love is your... How much does the Father love the Son? How much? So I have loved you. How much? I don't know how to quantify that. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. Why? Because it's mine. 
And that makes all of the difference in your life. He does not anymore look in wrath upon the Son, nor on you if you are in the Son. He looks on you with steadfast love and faithfulness, which is marvelous. It means you have no problems. Which I hope makes you think, well, hold on a second. We'll come to that. But it means you have no problems. The steadfast, faithful love of the omnipotent one rests on you. If he is for you, who in the world can be against you? See the logic of this? Who can be against you? And as as Luther said, well, everybody is, but nobody is. That's true. Everybody, but nobody. This should matter. And I emphasize should because I, I know for a lot of us, I know for myself, and a lot of people I talk to, it is difficult to get that past the should to the does matter. A lot of the time, we live just as perplexed as the psalmist. Now, there's, there's some reason for that. I'm going to come to that in the second point. But we need to first get completely clear on this point. The omnipotent one loves you is not a children's Bible song. Jesus loves me, this I know. It is a children's Bible song, but it's not only a children's Bible song. It's actually true. Who would have thought? It's true and it matters. May you sit there, Christian, may you sit there, even if sorrowing, also rejoicing, buoyed by the fact that the Omnipotent One loves you. With a steadfast love that isn't going anywhere. It will never be improved upon, which might sound bad until you realize it is already infinite. He does not at all in any way whatsoever look upon the Son of David in wrath. He does not in any way whatsoever at all look upon you in wrath. Do you sin? Yes. Does He discipline? Yes. In love. Not in wrath. I plead with you and I pray for you. Move this from it should matter to it matters. Which means we've dealt with the psalm and it's over, right? Because He asks the question, how long? And we've answered it until you raise Him from the dead triumphant. The end. Sort of. God has approved of Jesus and raised Him. God's wrath towards Him and towards us then is ended. But we still ask, how long? Because as we get up now from our theology and we look at it our lives, we say, you know, there are a lot of people still mocking And it sure seems like the mighty King David, the Messiah, it looks like his wall is still breached and he still fails in battle. He still is subjected to shame every day on street corners in every nation. How long is that going to last? And maybe a little more importantly, When I'm suffering under the mocking, what? What's the answer to that? Let's look at the second observation. Try to work on this a little bit. I'm going to put the second observation in the words that Paul taught the churches recorded in Acts 14.22. I could have put this in a bunch of different ways, but 
There's another layer of this problem that applies to us today. And so here's the, here's the second observation. I'm putting it like this. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In a number of ways, we've answered this question of how long already until we look around and realize that we still have a problem, that he's still scorned, still mocked, and so are his people, us. And this seems to be what's going on with the psalmist. And his problem here is he has theological room for David to be punished, but it's just gone to a much greater depth and over a much longer period of time than he was counting on. And that's, that's our issue too. We all have theological room for persecution. Right? Everybody's read at least a little bit of the book of Revelation. And when we get past all the craziness that we think is going on there, there's at least something that's clear to most of us. Persecution is real. We also realize that, yes, Christ's kingdom has come. His throne is established. But the kingdom, Jesus said, is first within, not out there in the world on the street corners quite yet. And there are still people who are in rebellion and who hate him everywhere. We got that. And then you experience what it is like to be plundered because you belong to the king. I read an email this last week about somebody who lives in Idaho who apparently is a Christian in the midst of a whole bunch of people who aren't Christians and lost his job because of it, so it seems. They don't like him, took his job away. That happens in America sometimes. Experience something like that. Or you live covered with shame because you bear the name of Christ. Maybe you're mocked in class. Go to the university and people treat you with scorn because you actually believe something. People at work make fun of you or kind of treat you with nice kid gloves that are a little bit demeaning. Maybe you're scorned by a hostile nation as it lifts up and honors every flavor of every wicked thing imaginable. Talking about the U.S. I am, and I am not, very carefully, I am not advocating a theocracy. This is a democracy. That's the way it's going to be. Personally, I prefer a democracy. But I am saying... Just like Lot living in the midst of sin, it is reality that those who are not in that, who have some taste of righteousness, are tormented in their righteous souls by the things they see and hear all around them. How long is that going to last? The steady state of the church, and I'm talking about America, is not one of triumph and glory. We are not the cultural influencers. We are not loaded with money. We are the underdogs in the United States. How long is that going to last? Now, really, I'm talking about the church in the U.S., that is all light. I mean, I'm I'm reaching for stuff here. You made fun of at work. We're not loaded with money. Hey, we're, we're, we're plenty comfortable. We're all wearing clothes. We all ate breakfast this morning if we wanted to. There's heat here. But there's, we taste a little bit of what it's like to be in the kingdom of Jesus but not be reigning. We taste a little bit of that here. Just for a second, let's step out of America to where most of the church lives. Leave the Western world. Go to communist countries. Go to the Muslim world. Go to Hindu countries. Places where unspeakable atrocities, and because they are unspeakable, I will not speak of them in detail, but you know what they are. 
unspeakable atrocities happen every single day to people for no other reason than that they bear the name of the king. And, and in the moments when, when our ignorance of that is stripped away and we see it, we ask, as they surely ask, how long is this going to go on? In some way, we, we interact with the people who are the persecutors and say, hey, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. Stop that. That's wrong. That's evil. But then another step, we say, God, hold on a second. You are the omnipotent one who has steadfast love and faithfulness towards me. And this? What? Maybe we experience that a little bit here, but we are far too insulated to know the the full pain of that. Maybe some of us have had the, the great fortune of interacting with people from other places who know what I'm talking about. I I had someone who was talking about this sort of subject who, who said something to me that was really interesting. He said, this all becomes, this all is, the danger for us Americans dealing with this kind of material is that it is so theoretical that it doesn't strike us And we don't get it. But if you were someone who when the Muslim tribal people came to your village and said, captured your children and carried them away and said, we're going to do some things to them tonight. If by five o'clock you have not renounced this faith. What do you do? And that's reality in the world today. More people have been killed in this last century because they bear the name of the king than in all the other centuries combined before it. And the pace is increasing. What? He's the king. Why is that? How can that be? We've got theological room for that, but living it is a whole other issue. To try to make it to land in our lives here. There are things that we suffer that if you think about it should not be if the king would just lift his hand and change it. And would he not want to do that for the people that he loves? But he doesn't. It goes on. And it gets worse until it all crashes. Why is that? Paul speaks of that. Says, well, it's because through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Which is not exactly an answer, but it gets us there. It gets us moving towards that. Through many tribulations, we must enter. The, the we must there. I preached through Acts and talked about this. The we must is a statement of divine necessity. God deems it that it is required for us to enter the kingdom through many tribulations. So there we've got at least, okay, God has not forgotten or overlooked it or been overpowered in some way. God deems it necessary. Why would that be? You can find this a lot of places in the Bible. You jot down 1 Peter 1, 6 if you like. It is necessary, Peter says, that we be grieved in various trials. And then he actually helps give an answer. So that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, may be proved genuine. And may result in praise and glory and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. 
which is a good thing for you. If we want to draw this together, and let me just kind of pull this together and give a bit of an answer. It is necessary. Why? The reason that these things are still going on and will continue to go on until Christ comes back and settles it all, the reason is because God has deemed it necessary. Well, why is it necessary? Because in a very profound way, the tribulation that we endure is the way that Christ's kingdom spreads, is established, is built in me and in others. Think about this for just a second. I don't have a lot of time to develop this. I'm just going to say it. His kingdom is established His throne, the throne of David, is built up and established in my heart best by persecution, best by hardship. Because it teaches me, it teaches me to cry out and to say with meaning, whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I require besides you. I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail in the midst of hardship and tribulation and persecution at the hands of people who hate me or just in random events. But you, Lord, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You don't say that with a big gulp and your feet up in front of a large screen TV and everything being perfect. You don't. You only say that through tears as your flesh and your heart are failing. That's reality. And so God in love, in steadfast love and faithfulness, will not surrender you. He will not surrender you to lesser desires and lesser fulfillments. He will feed you with Himself and the only way He can get you to open open your mouth He's in hardship. His kingdom spreads and His throne is established in you in that and in others who watch as they see you live off of God who is invisible. It makes no sense. But while you sorrow, you rejoice. And they wonder why. It is necessary because it is how the kingdom is established. It is how He brings in His own and matures them and grows them in love. And you can endure it. I can endure it. If and as we walk in verse 15 and 16, blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of Your face, who exult in Your name all the day and in Your righteousness are exalted. That is available to you if the whole world hates you. And as you and as I walk in that, shouting and singing of His love, living in the light of His face, full in our hearts with Him, we can bear up under all things. Hymns are strength and our portion forever. God has and is establishing throne of Messiah Jesus in your heart and in the nations. And He often does that through hardship. 
Blessed are the people who know this God of steadfast love. Let me pray. Father, by Your Spirit, will You cause this to rest on men and women and boys and girls here in whatever way they need it. Lord, You know where they all are. You know where they're coming from. You know the things that I just said that were confusing, that weren't expressed well, so clarify those things, I pray. Would You call people to You who don't know You? And would You strengthen in grace those who do? We thank You that You have brought Your kingdom already and we acknowledge that while it is not yet here in full, it is coming. We praise You for that and ask You, give us hope. Shine Your face upon us and move us to sing of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness forever and ever and ever. I pray this in the name of Your King, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.